Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. My name is Tony, and I'm your host. Today is episode 143 of the podcast, where I sit down with Bill McKendry. Now, Bill is a nonprofit leader, he's a marketing agent, executive, and he's a Jesus follower. I love Bill's approach to sneaky Jesus in the workplace and creating an advertising agency that serves Jesus. If you find yourself in the workplace, I think you're going to love, love, love this conversation with Bill. And remember, we believe that through intentional conversation, we can help you, our listener, unpack a deeper relationship with God. So hey, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, share this episode with a friend, and maybe leave a rating or review. I think you're going to love what Bill has to offer. He's got an incredible story from birth till now. He has built the kingdom of God everywhere he went. There's some really good stuff. Be sure to grab a pen and paper. You're going to need it. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Bill McKendry. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have a nonprofit leader and uh, kind of advertising agency extraordinaire, Bill McKendry, with us. Bill, thank you so much for uh, jumping on the podcast today. It's uh, awesome to be with you today. Appreciate it. So, Bill, uh, we're going to talk about your latest resource and kind of your what's kind of become a mission statement for you, which is is do more good. And um, I, as I was perusing all of your material and, and getting to to learn your story a little bit more, um, I, what's the genesis for this movement? And and is it any coincidence that you're pushing this at a time when it feels like uh, you know the country's never been so divided? Yeah, it's it's uh, you know I started on this journey actually. You know I created the term "do more good" in 1999. And uh, I actually mm. trademarked it uh, then. And um, it really, um, I was surprised that I could trademark it, right? Uh, so, but right. We, you know, I, you know I, literally when I plugged in the words into the trademark office uh, website and said, you know, hey, does anybody else own these, own, these, own these words, you know, and this phrase? And it came back that nobody did. And I was like, how's that possible? You know, so I really felt like mm. God... Uh, created a platform for me, right? But it actually started five years previous to that in 1994. Uh, I actually started an advertising agency. I had worked at a big advertising agency that was based in New York, and I worked in their Denver office, right? And so I worked on things like uh, American Express and Dodge and Taco Bell and uh, and Kohler. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, there was a gentleman that worked across the street from me in Denver, a guy named Jim Hainan, that I, I wouldn't end up meeting till I moved back to Michigan. And again, <laughs> and he, he, he had, we knew of each other in Denver, but we didn't know, really didn't really know each other. Right. We worked at competing ad agencies. And then I moved back to Michigan and his career takes him on to Chicago and uh, he ends up working with Leo Burnett in Chicago. And Leo Burnett uh, is one of the biggest advertising agencies in the world. And Jim's career took him to uh, took him to the top of that agency. And he, you know, he did really phenomenal work for like McDonald's, for example. And uh, oh, wow. uh, six years worth of Super Bowl ads for McDonald's, which one is still 
ranked as one of the top three Super Bowl ads in the history of Super Bowl advertising. That was the one with Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. I don't know if you if you ever saw. Oh yeah, that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, nothing but yeah. net. Name of that commercial, and that was Jim's commercial, right? And uh, and so um, I ended up reconnecting with Jim and taking him on as my partner in Michigan. I I, I lured him away from Leo Burnett and. Uh, but where the conversation really started, and I'll get to where how this gets to do more good, where the conversation really started is we were both 33 years old at the time, and we both mm-hmm. had had already achieved success uh, by that time. We both had, you know, when we looked at our careers, and, and if you looked and examined our careers from an award standpoint, from a money standpoint, from a prestige standpoint, we... By 33, we both had already experienced a great amount of success, yet we were sitting together and uh, um, and we were talking about our careers and where we were going to go, and uh, and we were both not satisfied. There was, a, there was something gnawing away at us. And the conversation started, uh, quite honestly, is I had landed a, a client uh, that was based in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, that client had their own bowl game, for example. They're called Weiserlock, and they had a Weiserlock Copper Bowl uh, in Tucson, Arizona. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, for a little agency in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where I loca- relocated after Colorado, um, that was a big deal. And, and Jim was asking me, he says, well, aren't, how can you not be satisfied, you know? You, you left the big agency world, you started your own little agency, and you landed a pretty good-sized client, and how can you not be happy? And I looked at him, and I said, you know, well, Weiserlock makes, uh, just so you have a frame of reference, they, they make doorknobs and handle sets that, that you can buy at Home Depot and Lowe's, right? And I, and I, I looked at yeah. Jim, I looked at Jim, and I said, I said, you know, we've both done a lot of really great things in our career, right? But where I'm at right now is I'm afraid that Someday I'm going to die, and on my tombstone it's going to say, Bill McKendry is one of the world's greatest marketers of doorknobs and handle sets, maybe the best in the entire history of that category. And I go, I don't want to die with that on my gravestone. Hmm. Interestingly, at that point, Jim and I had known each other for a long time. But we didn't know, like in the big advertising world, it's a lot like Hollywood. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about your religion. And Jim said to me, he said, Bill, we've known each other a long time, but I've never asked you this question. Are you a Christian? Mm. I said, yes, I am. I said, Jim, I am a Christian. Are you a Christian? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm a Christian too. He said, I think what's gnawing at you right now is, you know, did God make us to sell credit cards, hamburgers, tacos, cars, toilets, you name it, doorknobs, handle sets? Did God, is that the reason why he gave us these skills? Or did he give us these skills to do something different? Mm. We, had, we started a lunch conversation, and the lunch conversation was simply to talk about doing some work together. But Jim asked me this question during that lunch conversation. He said, what kind of agency, if we, if we could just theoretically talk about something, what kind of agency would Jesus want us to work at? Wow. 
It started as a lunch conversation that went till four o'clock in the morning the next day. And we actually literally <laughs> met. Four o'clock in the morning? Four o'clock wow. in the morning the next day. And we mapped out what we felt like was, you know, an advertising agency that would serve Jesus. And we said, you know, the voice of faith, the voice of human kindness, the voice of charity in our culture is not competing well. How would we, hmm. how would we, uh, how would we help that? What would we do to help nonprofit organizations and specifically faith-based ministries to compete better in the marketplace? So we started an ad agency in 1994 based in Grand Rapids. We eventually had a, opened an office in Colorado Springs later called Hayden McKendry, and we set about using our skills that we had learned working with some of the world's best marketers and said, how can we apply this to places that really matter, to places that really make a difference, to, to more meaningful work? So in 1999, five years later, the American Advertising Federation recognized me as the person doing the best cause marketing work in the country. They brought me to New York City. Oh, wow. And uh, they gave me a, their top award for doing cause marketing. I had to give a speech. And the president of the American Advertising Federation approached me after that speech. And he said, you, you've got to go on tour. You've got to share your knowledge with nonprofit organizations and faith-based organizations, what you know, and how they can really compete in this world, and what they really need to do in order to really capture our country's imagination again, and their hearts, mm-hmm. right? And, and so when they asked me to do that, I said, sure, I would do it. But I, at that point, I really wasn't a public speaker. And, uh, and so I sought some counsel and stuff like that. And everybody said, you got to have a handle. And so I come up with the handle, do more good. I go to the trademark office mm-hmm. and I'm able to register it. And, uh, and so do more good is really rooted in, in our beliefs and my, my beliefs in that God gave me a gift of being able to uh, speak persuasively, to communicate effectively, and to be able to be a translator of dreams, right? I I always say I'm like Joseph from the Bible, right? I'm a translator of dreams and a trusted advisor. And and so my job is to work with nonprofit organizations and faith-based organizations and help them communicate to a market that is fiercely competitive with a consumeristic materialistic world. Yeah. Uh, I love that. And and what I like about do more good as it pertains to, to kind of your brand is that it's not just do more good. Like you're trying to do more good, but you're trying to help these nonprofits do more good with the tools that you're giving them. So you're, um, you know, in the army, we used to call it a force multiplier, right? You're a catalyst in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it isn't until you until you like really uh, meet with nonprofit executives and and uh, and leaders of, of faith based ministries do you really wake them up to the competitive forces that they're against, right? And you know when you realize when you really sit with them and you realize what do you need in order for your organization to grow and be successful, right? Typically, they need people's awareness, they need people's time, and they need people's money some combination of those things, I probably all of them, right? And so so when you really break it down, they're in the business of competing for discretionary time and money. 
And then I remind them, you know, your competition, even though nonprofit organizations and faith-based organizations never like to talk about competition, your competition is fierce for those things. And they go, yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of nonprofits and and organizations out there. I go, no, 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 no. Apple, Budweiser, Pepsi, Harley-Davidson, Nike, that's your competition. And if you want to stand out in this marketplace, if you're sitting here and you're wondering why, why has this country gone to be such a, a nation of consumers rather than a nation of citizens, why have we gone so far down the materialistic path? It's because those guys are really good and you guys are not at communicating. <laughs> so uh, prior to um, the work I do here with Spirit and Truth, um, which is a, a nonprofit that walks alongside churches, I, I was a local pastor for 10 years. Yeah. And one of the things that I really believe is that the local church has a huge marketing problem because we have the best story in the world and no succinct way to say it. So I'm going to put you in a make-believe position. You have now just been promoted to marketing uh, for the global, or let's just say the North American church. What's the one thing that you're going to get all of these organizations to, I mean, what's, how, how do we sell it better, Bill? Like fix us, make us, make us get this out, this word that's life-giving and important out to the masses. How, how do we do it first? Yeah. So, uh, I I'm, I'm dealing with some secret ammunition that you don't know about. You didn't even know about before we got into this interview. Right. So when you ask that question, I'm going to go off completely off script from do more good and tell you I'm already doing that right now. And that's oh, really, because, yeah. And, uh, and, and our problems are actually worse than what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I was approached, uh, by a, uh, a group of very successful individuals who are Christians who are concerned about exactly what you're talking about, the church and Christianity and the state of Christianity. And they, they came to realize that not only have we been seeing trends going the wrong way for the church, right, and uh, and Christianity, but the reality is, is uh, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, we're a hate group. Hmm. And you say, how can that be, right? And, and who is the Southern Poverty Law Center? First of all, I don't want to trash the Southern Poverty Law Center. They've actually done a really a lot of fantastic things, especially on the on the topic of racism in this country over the years, right? Sure. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they have become the arbiter in this country of who is a hate group. And if you go to the Southern Poverty Law Center right now and go to their hate group website, and they'll have all mapped out who are the hate groups in the United States, and you're going to see a list that starts with neo-Nazis, you know, white supremacists, the KKK, <clears throat> and then Christian identity, the Catholic Church, wow. right? Wow. And uh, the problem is, is the Southern Poverty Law Center is now become the standard for Facebook, Instagram, New York Times, Washington Post, all major media, all major academia on who is a hate group and who isn't. And they're labeling Christian groups, Mm. 
like Focus on the Family, like Alliance Defending Freedom, they're labeling them as hate groups because of their stances on same-sex marriage and abortion. Wow. And, and so, so we were presented, I was presented with a problem statement by a, a group of very wealthy Christian donors saying, we got to do something. We got to shape our culture for Christ. There needs to be a new awakening and we've got to do something. We have to do something now when it, cause they were, they were disturbed when they saw this and the problem statement that they presented to me at that time was how did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? How did that happen? Yeah. Right. So this is how I approach things. I mean, it's like, okay, you got to tell me the problem statement and you got to tell me what it is that we, we need to overcome. And then I'm going to figure out if you want to communicate, which I believe is one of the most powerful vehicles uh, in today's culture, then we need to figure out a way to communicate and differentiate and get through to people what our message is really all about. We did six months of research. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you know, if I'm the brand marketer uh, uh, of, of, uh, of the Christian brand, right, uh, number one, the thing that we found in this national survey, and, and this was a 5,000-person survey, voter ID matched, right? We know that basically, even though we didn't talk to everybody in America, we basically talked to everybody in America, right? Every group, every wow. yeah. ideology, everything was represented, right? And what's, what was amazing about this research was we said, uh, we found out that Jesus is not the problem. Christians, Christianity, and the church have a brand problem. Jesus has no brand yeah, problem. Yeah, amen not to even, that. Not even no, like everybody any, understands Jesus. <clears throat> right? Yeah. So, based on that, we started doing all kinds of research too about messaging surrounding Jesus, right? But one of the things that we did is when we did this survey, you if you took this survey, you would not know that you were being asked by a Christian organization because we asked all kinds of questions about all kinds of people, including religious figures. We asked questions about Muhammad. We asked questions about Buddha. We asked questions about Gandhi. We asked questions about Jesus, right? And what's interesting is, you know, for people who reject religion or just don't admit that they're religious, you know, we identified basically, we divided people into basically four groups at the end of this. And we said there are engaged Christians. Those are about 30% of America. There's cultural Christians who are just as big. Another 30% of America are cultural Christians. And those are people who... Uh, maybe, you know, would self-identify as a Christian, uh, you know, were born into a Christian family, maybe go to church once or twice a year, but they don't tell their friends that they're Christians. And they got some issues mm. with uh, with the divinity of Christ. You know, they're not fully bought in on all that, right? But they, they, they think they're Christians, but they don't really tell other people they're Christians because they're kind of embarrassed of Christians. But then we have these this got group it. of skeptics. We have skeptics, which are 24% of America. And then we have, you know, this non-believer off the, off the rails, you know, 18%, 18% of America, or 16% of America, 
that you know you just can't convince. They're science only or proof only type of people. But what was really interesting, one thing that we really found from research was <clears throat> when we asked people, you know, what is it that you know, like for example, what is religion really all about? You know, and uh, and and people say it's about being a good person, right? It's about mm. learning to be a good person. And there's so many people that say, I, as a result, I don't need religion. I know what is a good person. And so I'm just going to be focused on being a good person. And so we said, all right. Across all belief spectrum, can you guys describe for us what is a good person? The top four answers across the board. This is including atheists. Top four answers were peacekeeper, approachable, compassionate, and loving all. Then we wow. said, then we said, all right, so let's go back through these religious figures. Can you tell me what, what's good about these people? Tell us what's good about Muhammad. Tell us what's good about uh, Buddha. Tell us what's good about Jesus. Tell us what's good about Gandhi, right? Guess what? Of all the religious figures that we question people about, the only one, one and one only, matched the top four answers exactly. Hmm. So in same order, people ranked Jesus was a peace seeker. He was approachable, he was compassionate, and he loved all. Guess what? Evidence number one, Jesus is written on everybody's hearts whether they want to admit it or not, right? Wow, so, yeah. So then we went and we've created a campaign, and you can look up this campaign. We've just got done testing it in 10 markets. The campaign is called He Gets Us. And you can look at you can look at uh, the website hegetsus.com, but I would encourage you to go to the YouTube channel for He Gets Us and watch the videos and the TV commercials that we put together on this campaign. This campaign just got done running uh, five weeks in ten markets, almost thirty million views of our work on YouTube, targeting skeptics. Wow! And 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 the responses have been phenomenal the number one complaint that we get from people is actually from christians because they don't understand sure. the language that we're using right the language we're using is outside of the language that they're used to using and they're, they're having a hard time lining up the biblical stories with the story that we have there's a there's a there's an ad called uh teen mom and it's basically the story of jesus jesus's birth right and Mary and Joseph mm. and what they went through. But it's told in very, very, very contemporary language with, with imagery, black and white still photography, journalistic type quality, just gorgeous photography, but raw and real and authentic, right? And when you watch, when you get done watching the commercials, you know, the skeptics are going, wow, Jesus was born to a teen mom. Jesus did face a lot of the same things that we face. He was challenged by many of the things that we're challenged by. 
that he was fully human. Mm. He gets us. And it's really just an entree. What we found is if you can create an entree for people to raise their hand and say, I want to learn more about Jesus, and you provide them with content, we found that over 60% of skeptics want to learn more about Jesus when you allow them to explore that on their own. But then also give them outlets for, okay, now I'm ready to talk to somebody. And we've, so I, to answer your question, we've already started this process. And, uh, well, well let, let me, let me drill down on that a little bit because yeah. I, I think, um, you brought up a really interesting point, which is it, it feels like, um, the existing Christian culture is what's preventing us from changing the brand. Now you've done so much marketing in your career. I mean, this has to be a pretty common thing, right? Like you go into an organization that feels like it's been super successful. That's maybe yep. stand, you know, since the beginning of time and all of a sudden they don't want to change or hold on to what they've, um, or get rid of, of what they've always known. So as you're walking with, um, churches, clients, whoever, through the idea of changing their um, brand uh, in order to, to reach those that aren't yet here or to, to gain the next part of the market share, however you want to say it, how do you, how do you teach people to be okay with change? Yeah, that's the, you know, I love that question because it reminds me of a, it was a Harvard business review story about uh, uh, second generation businesses. And, uh, um, and their high degree of failure rate. And uh, it was like, mm. why, why do second generation businesses, like if they can make it, usually if they can make it to the third generation, it, things get cleaned up and, and, uh, and they're able to sustain and, and, and move on. But for whatever reason, there's a high failure rate as a, as a first generation passes to a second generation on a business, right? <clears throat> it's like most vulnerable time in a business besides the starting period. So they uh, they did, they actually commissioned a study on second generation businesses, and uh, you know they had some assumptions going in that you know maybe the second generation is just a little lazier than the first generation. They aren't they aren't go getters, right? They aren't driven like the first generation was, you know, and uh, and as a result, you know, second generation kids just couldn't handle it, right? And as a result, the business right. that was the assumption going in. That's the, all the things that you would think of, right? What they found out instead, though, when they get it, got in was the second generation was more driven, worked more hours, was more committed, mm. and uh, yet the failure rate was hard or was high. What they found was the reason why it was why they become more successful in the third generation rather than the second generation is because the second generation is still trying to repeat a lot of the same things that the first generation did. And so rather than innovate and become new and renew, they just try to do the same thing as the first generation, but harder. They worked harder. And so Harvard hmm. Business Story Review at the end said, what we, what we learned is old ways harder don't work. And I feel like that's the case here is... Our culture is changing, right? It's constantly changing. I mean, you look at the introduction of social media alone. I look at it with my own kids, for example. It's like, I did not grow up with that kind of pressure. 
you know, I graduated from before social media came back into existence. I graduated in high school in 1980 and there were people I never saw until Facebook started again. Right. You know, and it's like, right. had Facebook not started, I probably wouldn't see those people the rest of my life. Right. But instead you got, you got all this constant comparison that's going on and the pressures of social media, you know, this world is evolving and changing all the time and the pressures are changing the truth is the truth. The truth is not going to change, right? I mean, Jesus's message is true no matter what, but how we apply that and how we talk about it and how we uh, use it, it can't be the old ways harder. It has to be, we have to think of new language. I sat with a group of extremely influential, it's considered to be the top 25 young voices in, in Christianity today. I went to this private gathering and, uh, and before we even started this campaign, I wanted to hear from them. And you can't believe how many of them looked at me as successful. as I mean, these are people that have millions of followers already themselves. And they looked at me and they said, I don't know what's going on, but we need new language. We just don't. We just don't have it anymore. You know, the, the ways that we've been talking about Christians and Christianity in this country just aren't working like they used to. We need new methods and new practices. That's what this, quite honestly, that's what we're doing right now is we're creating new ways to communicate because guess what? There's new frontiers that people are facing. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation with Bill to remind you about the Spirit and Truth Conference. You guys know as well as I do that this is such an important time in the life of the church. And we want to help you, the church leader, the church attender, the church member, grow in your relationship with Christ. And we are offering a one-in-a-lifetime chance to do it here March 17th through the 19th, Dayton, Ohio, Stillwater Church, the Spirit and Truth Conference. And for you, our family here at the podcast, we have a discount code. So when you go to spiritandtruth.life, spiritandtruth.life, and register, put in the code reclamation, reclamation for a discount on your registration free. We'd love to offer that to you. And uh, we think it's going to be so, so, so much fun. I can't wait to see you guys there. I'll be hosting. I'll be there with all my friends. And I can't wait to connect. Now, let's finish up this conversation with Bill. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, um, uh, about the, the prospect of change Right, I, I've long believed that change is like a muscle, and you have to keep working it in order to to use it. If you don't use it, uh, the muscle atrophies and it eventually grows weak. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say, without being offensive here, Bill, that you're in a, a later season of life than I am. Yep. Right? You've you you told me before we recorded you've been married for 38 years, and when I was in the local church, uh, what I always heard is that um, more seasoned individuals, some might say old, I wouldn't say old, I don't like that word, but uh, uh, more seasoned individuals struggle with change. Is that real or do we just get lazy in the muscle? What What do you think? I think it's a combination of both. I think, you know, I mean, you know, when you're not constantly changing, when you're not trying to keep up, you do, you know, you're, you, you suffer from atrophy, right? And, and as a result, you know, you just don't have the strength to change. But I, I've always believed in myself as, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. You know, that I believe that's how I stay young in my mind is saying, if I don't learn something today, man, that was a wasted day. And, and so 
I want to keep my mind fresh. I want to keep open to change. And, uh, and, and this world is constantly evolving and changing. I happen to be in a business that demands that you stay current, right? And stay on top of change and really understand what's going on and be comfortable with it. You know, you know, you know, we were just talking this morning, you know, we've, we've had issues with actually advertising on Instagram and Facebook with this campaign and Facebook has been, Facebook has been giving us a hard time and we're still not approved on this campaign. Uh, and we tried for five weeks to get approval to run on Facebook and, you know, they don't give us a straight answer, but you know, but then, you know, I was asked this morning, it's like, well, what if eventually we can't advertise on Facebook and Instagram? I go, no worry. It's like, you know, Snapchat and TikTok and, and, uh, and other vehicles are taking their place. Quite honestly, we may not even want to advertise on Facebook and Instagram in not too long time because that's for old people, right? Where we want right. to be is in this, in, 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 this, in this new mediums, right? So you, I, you know, I think you have to set, force yourself to be able to change, right? You know, and I look at, I look at Jesus and, and his history of how he was a communicator. And, you know, I have to be honest that everything I understood from a marketing standpoint, uh, when it comes to, you know, who, how Jesus spoke is exactly what I was taught as a marketer, on how to speak. Right. You know, so hmm. he started with people's conditions, right? He never started with what he wanted to tell them. He started with where they were at. Then he spoke to their condition, right? He spoke to their condition. He modified his language so that he would, they would understand him. His stories were adapted to their lives. He told farmers, farmer stories. He told fishermen, fishermen stories, right? He told, you know, soldiers, soldier stories, right? He, he adapted his storytelling and his parables to those people. He didn't demand that they come to his level and his experience and his understanding. He came down to them. And that's a lesson, I think, for all of us of why we have to constantly be learning and changing and understanding. The truth is the truth of the it's it's universal. It's going to, you know, the power of the truth is never going to change how we communicate it. We need to be like Jesus. We need to be willing to bring it to the people in a way that they'll understand it and feel it and grasp it on their own so that it has an impact on them like Jesus had an impact on them. Right. He modeled for us everything of what we're supposed to do. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about your story uh, and you're very open about is the reality that you were born to two deaf parents. Yeah. And so you spent the, the majority of your adolescence, well, childhood and adolescence translating for them. And, and I'm wondering, um, you, you know, what, what did you learn about yourself and about God of course, in hindsight, uh, translating for your parents for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. You know, I, I always, I was an oops baby, right? You know, so I was like, like the closest uh, sibling to, to me was seven years older. And I, I, I used to, you know, tell my parents, it's like, you just ran out of kids and you needed another translator. So you guys had another kid. I mean, you know, so they they laughed. I mean, my parents had had a, had a had a great sense of humor, but yeah. So I was born into a family where you know sign language was my first language, and uh, you know I had to mm. translate for my parents uh, from an early age. And you tell people 
you know, I was doing car deals when I was like six years old. I was helping them rene- renegotiate their mortgage, you know, before I was 10 years old. You know, and uh, you know, I was calling in sick for them, knowing that they weren't even sick some days. And, uh, you know, being faced with, you know, those kinds of dilemmas, right? And, uh, and, and, and I, for whatever reason, I think one of my most memorable times of translating is my mom got in a car accident and uh, she had to go in to the emergency room and had to have her lips sewed back on. Uh, and, uh, and they had no translator for her. And so I got, I got a call at home. So here I'm 16 years old. I got to go into the emergency room and translate to my mom live during surgery. I don't like hospitals. I don't like blood. Right. But I have to, but you know, you just click into another mode. Right. And it's like, I have to translate for my mom so that she understands what's going on uh, during this surgery. Right. So, you know, I feel all of that. I used to, you know, I used to be kind of, you know, when you look at it, you go, well, you know, why did God burden me with that, you know, having to be a translator for my parents, right? Where I got to see other kids that didn't have to go through all of that. Uh, and so there are times maybe where you felt sorry for yourself. Today, I'm just so, I feel so blessed that I, that I had that opportunity, that I had that opportunity to learn things the way I learned them. Um, but, you know, in, and, and as a result, it's made me the person I am today. You know, I'm a translator, right? And so I have to translate what people want to say to the market in a way that the market wants to understand it. The same thing had to happen when I was young. I mean, people what people don't understand about sign language is when you get into sign language, you realize everybody also automatically assumes it's the English language in sign, but it's not. It's really a different language, and uh, wow. and the syntax is completely different, and uh, and so you have to constantly be translating, you know, from the sentence-based world that you live in as a hearing person to a sign-based world, which is extremely noun-driven, and you know you got to get to the point. Like like if I if I say uh, uh, in, you know in in normal life. Hey, I need you to run over there and get me that right now. That's how you would say it, right? It's sign language is like sure. now you go, you know, and it's just you know, it's, <laughs> it's you know you just cut out all all the words and get right right straight to it. And so, being a translator for people, for my mom and my dad, has helped me. It's been a gift. It's been a gift, and, and I think many mm-hmm. people if you really look at the experiences in your life. And you ask yourself, why would God put you through that? And I realized that God was preparing me exactly for what he was preparing me for. This campaign that I got done talking to you about, uh, one, the most interesting aspect of this campaign is when I got the call back in March originally to think about this and how to go to market about this, I asked the person who called me on this, I go, can I use the working title Campaign for Christ?" while we work on this hmm. and the person said sure you know call whatever you want you know i go good he goes why do you ask i said because i've had that written on my to-do list for 15 years i don't know fully why wow and i had it placed on my heart 15 years ago that i need to be a part of doing a campaign for christ and i said what you just called me today to do is something i feel like i've been prepared my entire life to do and so from a translator 
to working in the field the way that I've worked to getting to this point, having all the experiences that I've had. I've worked with over 300 uh, nonprofit organizations, most of them faith-based organizations, uh, and, and I've spoken to over 200 groups on nonprofit marketing and branding, you know, and then to finally arrive at this place where I'm ready exactly at the time that God wants me to be ready to be able to do this campaign. I don't know how, I don't know how you even explain that other than it's God. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this, you you know, in your book, do more good, you kind of, um, you talk about this work that you've done with nonprofits over the years. I I guess it it almost feels like nonprofits really struggle with either the message or the language, or, or maybe it is a language barrier. Why are for-profit companies so good at getting their message out and nonprofit companies seem to struggle in the mud and the muck of it all? Yeah, I, I, think, one of the, I, you know, I think one of the things that's really core that's taught like in business school, for example, is risk and reward, right? Hmm. And so, you know, you're taught... You know, I went to business school. I, I, and I even though I have an advertising degree, um, I got a scholarship uh, to go to the University of Denver, and uh, because I was a poor kid, and uh, uh, but then they forced me to get a marketing degree through the business school. Again, wasn't my design, um, but I was forced yeah. to do it. And to this day, I can tell you, gosh, I'm so glad I was forced to do that. But in business school, you know, they're very good about risk and reward. I mean, you just got to get comfortable with risk. And you have to realize you're not always going to be successful. And that's where you come, you know, a lot of business people have this mindset of, I don't, they don't live in a win-lose environment. They live in a win-learn environment. And when you don't win, when you don't win, you learn. And you learn how to do it even better. Now, this campaign that I just got done talking about, the He Gets His campaign, was funded by business people, Christian business people. Sure. I didn't want I didn't want to run the test campaign uh, as early as we did. But I was told by a very successful business person, Bill, go, spend the money, and learn, so that when we go national, you figured this out. So we're going to be more successful, right? That's a business mentality, right? Unfortunately, I think the nonprofit world lives in a scarcity mentality rather than an abundance mentality. And so as a result, they're risk adverse. I mean, that's the only thing I can really chalk it up to is they don't see as win and learn. They see as win and lose. And if they lose, the costs are too great. They have to explain that to their donor base. They... They, they don't understand that sometimes when you take a risk, you're going to lose. They can't explain that. They always want to err then on the side of being conservative in their choices, conservative in their efforts. And as a result, they don't really achieve the big strides and success that you see that the business world is able to do. Now, there are exceptions. I mean, I you know, you look at the history of people like Martin Luther King and Billy Graham and stuff like that, and you go... Those people were risk takers, right? Huge risk takers, yeah. and and as a result, they that that's why they achieve the impact that they achieve. Uh, but then, as I look at so many nonprofit organizations and so many nonprofit leaders, they're so afraid of taking risks uh, that it actually stifles growth. 
Mm. So l- let's talk a bit about the the risk of of putting your story down on paper and sending it out to the world, right? That do more yeah. good. What what is your uh, a, a year from now, right? What are we celebrating that God did with this piece of writing? Like, what, what's your what's your end game with this book? Well, I, interestingly enough, you know this this is where that that campaign that uh, he gets us campaign and the book actually connect. Um, the book is set up in a uh, using a proprietary process that I've I've learned from the world's greatest marketers, but have packaged it in such a way that's easy to follow for a nonprofit organization, right? And that is there is a process uh, for achieving success uh, in the marketplace, and uh, especially when you're communicating about and wanting to grow your success in the marketplace. And it's the ideas process is 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 the acronym that I use. And it's about getting the insights that you need in order to put together messaging and direction that you need to do, right? So you need to do your homework. You need to do your research. You really need to do some fact-finding. You need to, you need to talk to people. You really need to look at the marketplace. You need to look at the landscape of things. And so what I encourage nonprofit organizations to do is do your homework. Gather as many insights as you possibly can. And I, and I give, in the book, I give nonprofit organizations, all kinds of tools and techniques on how to gather insights. But then from that point, you're going to have to develop a strategy and a direction. And that includes, you know, some tactics, including how are you going to accomplish this? You know, what is your strategy? How are you going to take this to market? And so that's the D in ideas. So you need, you need to develop direction. But then you're going to have to explore different ways to express yourself in the marketplace. And I always encourage, like when we did this campaign, I ran this campaign and I own an advertising agency. And, and it would be very tempting for me to say, me and my advertising agency are going to do this campaign. But what I told this group of investors in this particular assignment, I go, you want to impact culture for Christ? Let's talk to the agencies that are impacting culture already. Let's talk to the agencies that are doing Nike work. Let's do the, just talk to the agency that's doing yeah. Gatorade work. Let's talk to the agencies that are doing, you know, Budweiser and stuff like that and see if they'll pitch this work. Client thought hmm. I, you know, the group of investors thought I was crazy. They go, "Well, if you if you can find Christians at these agencies, you know, then we're we're willing. I got five agencies to pitch." Wow. And and so I asked each one of them to bring three ideas to the table. So we ended up, you know, looking at 15 phenomenal ideas from these agencies. And we ended up selecting one. And they all went after this work really hard because, number one, we were spending a lot of money. But number two, it was meaningful to them. I found mm. within these organizations and in leadership in these organizations that there are Christians in these organizations Every one of these agencies that I asked to pitch not only agreed to pitch, they told me this was an assignment they were waiting their whole life to work on. Wow. Right? And so, you know. How did he do it? Yeah. So when, I, so when it came to expression, we, we explored every possible way to express this. And we chose, and because we were given so many excellent examples, we chose what we considered to be the most powerful one. Right? And then it moves to action. How are we going to take this to market? What are we going to learn? But then the last one is success. 
And you always need to say to yourself before you get started on any initiative, how are we going to define success? And then you have to be ready to measure that at the end. And then you need to ask yourself some pretty hard questions when you get to the end of that process and say, okay, we, we did all this stuff. Did we achieve success? And if we did, how did we do it best? If we didn't, where did we fail? And no matter what, even if you did or you don't achieve success, there's always things that you can do better. Or there's things that you can do differently. And then you get back to that the beginning of the process. Those insights create new direction, which create new expression. And you've got to constantly be improving yourself and how you communicate to the marketplace. And so that's the process in which, you know, things come together. I can tell you, I've been working with the ideas process for over 30 years, right? This campaign for the nonprofit community or the faith-based community is the first time it was done at such a level of excellence that I would expect out of Nike, McDonald's, and Apple. Wow. So while I've done it, I've done Man, it. That's for an incredible years. tease. I, yeah. There's always compromises. There were always compromises, you know, like, well, we don't want to spend that much. or We don't want to do that. Or we, you know, there was always, there were no, absolutely no compromises made here. And what we can, what I can tell you from the 10 market test already is to say, you know, when I tell you 30 million YouTube views of our work, that's only, we only expose this work to 10% of America. Wow. So if we, were, if we actually advertise this to America, our results will be 10 times that. That's incredible. Right. And so that's where the two come together is idea. I've been working ideas for a long time, but convincing the nonprofit and faith-based community that you really need to do it at the level that business does it. This is the first time in my career that has been done to perfection. Oh, I love God's timing and all of it, right? It's it's yeah. a perfect uh it's the perfect intersection. And I think it's it's exciting to hear about and it's exciting to to see. And uh, you know, I, I can't wait for nonprofits to get this book in their hands, and I can't wait for America to see this campaign because it sounds like it's just gonna be an an absolute um home run. Uh now I, I know my my listeners are going to want to connect with you. I've, I've got one more question for you, but before I ask it, where's the best place all over the interwebs to learn about do more good, to connect to your, your nonprofit kind of uh, resource. Cause you got tons of resources out there. So many free resources for nonprofits. If you are connected to a nonprofit, if you've got a church and uh, you, you have the ability to, to share information with your pastor, I'm telling you that this information is so good out here on the interwebs. W- where's the best starting place, Bill? Yeah, just go to domoregood.org, and uh, you you can start there. And then uh, you know, there's ways to send us messages uh, through that. That's the easiest one to remember. I have, you know, other email addresses and stuff like that. But that's the easiest place uh, for people to remember. That's great. And I, I you know, you, you guys are out there on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the different places where you would expect uh, and a world-class, you know, advertising agency to be. And so yeah. uh, you, it's really easy to find. So I'm, yeah. I'm, you're clearly doing your job well. Um, all right. La- last question. I always love to ask people and, and you've been so generous with your time today. I'm incredibly thankful. Um, it's an advice question. And okay. I ask you to go back and give yourself one piece of advice. And I'm going to ask you to go back to young Bill 
the day after you graduate from the University of Denver. So you've graduated from the University of Denver. If you could go back and say something to that young man, what would you say? Well, I, I, I would say that I wish I would have gotten, you know, I spent many years just doing secular work, right? Uh, I, 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 I can honestly look back and say that's part of God's plan too. Right. As much as I, mm-hmm. as much as I, uh, hate, hate the idea that I wasted all those years doing just secular work. Uh, but I, I did, I, I learned from the best in the business and, uh, I, I learned er- virtually everything that I wrote in do more good. Uh, the book, uh, are things that I've learned in the secular market. Right. And so, uh, um, and so I've just been applying those principles to the nonprofit and faith-based market, but you know, I, I just wish I would have been more quick to start applying what I knew to the work of the kingdom. Right. I, for mm. too long until I was 33 years old, I, I didn't, I didn't merge the two, right. My business life was my business life. My faith life was my faith life. And it wasn't until I was 33 years old in 1994 did I combine the two. And I can tell you that um, when I finally combined the two, I've, ne- I've never felt more blessed in my entire life. I've never felt more at peace in my entire life. Uh, and so I would just encourage anybody listening to this, if you're getting tugged in two different directions and maybe God has you on a path that's important for you to learn certain things. Um, don't put off kingdom work. Just don't put off kingdom work. I wish I would have gotten to it sooner. 33 years old sounds pretty young. You know, now that I'm 60, it sounds super young. Uh, but, you know, I can tell you when I was 33 years old, I already felt like an old man because I had spent so much time working my butt off very hard in, uh, in, in secular work. Right. And, uh, but, and so that, that would be the advice is get to that sooner, as soon as you can. Kingdom work is the most important work in, in, in this entire world. It's the only thing that really matters. And so the sooner you can really combine those two things, and I'm probably with your audience, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Um, but at, at the same time, uh, it is really critical that you don't, your work, regardless of what it is, should be God's work too. Amen. Amen. That's so good. Um, Bill, I, I can't thank you enough for the, the conversation today. It was such a joy to thank learn you. about you and your story. And uh, I always know it's a good interview when I don't get to all the questions and I hardly got to any of the questions that I wanted to ask, but I think we got right where God wanted us to be. So <laughs> thank you so much. I, I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, I, I appreciate it too. Thank you very much. And bless you and, and, and what you're trying to do and, and bring uh, important content for people to learn and understand and grow. And, uh, and iron sharpening iron. I love the, I love that whole concept. It's always been what I love doing. And, uh, and I hear that and what you're doing. So thank you for your time. I told you guys, what a great conversation. I love the way he's looking at marketing for the church. And it's such a need. There are so many churches and movements that need a voice that will help shift it. Bill is that guy. So, hey, if you liked this episode, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a rating or review on iTunes and now on Spotify. 
and be sure to share this episode with a friend. Every time you share the episode, I always get touched because it's the best way to pass the word about what God is doing on this platform. And remember, guys, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.